0: Welcome to this special episode of the Halihawa podcast with your host Abigail Kima. This podcast brings together key African players in the climate space to simply share their personal experiences as they advocate for climate justice and environmental justice in their unique capacities. And at Halihawa Podcast, we are proud to bring you experts from the African continent who have quite a remarkable experience in their different uh, areas. Today, we have the pleasure of hosting three wonderful guests, uh, Caitlin, Dennis, and Clement. How are you guys doing? Well, great. Thank you for having
1: me.
2: Great.
0: Us. Yeah. Thank you for having us. Uh, it's lovely to have you on set today. Um, and I'll just invite you to introduce yourselves, starting with Dennis.
2: Hi, my name is Dennis. I'm a lawyer in Ghana mm-hmm. and I work as a legal and policy consultant at Taylor Crab, um, a law firm which is um, focused on law and development practice, providing consultancy service for international development organizations, government of Ghana,
0: mm-hmm. and
2: supporting civil society organizations in the advocacy.
0: Amazing. And to you, Clement.
3: Hi, Abigail. Good to be. Um... On this podcast, my name is Clement. As you indicated, I also work with Taylor Crab. So, um, Taylor Crab is a Ghanaian law firm, and within the law firm, we have a not-for-profit wing known as Taylor Crab Initiative, uh-huh. where we use our legal backgrounds to support civil society activism and campaigns in the natural resources and environmental sector in Ghana so this is what we do and we've been doing this um, in partnership with um, Client F, um a UK environmental law firm and we've been working collaboratively with them for the last um, almost 12 years.
1: Amazing, thank you so much for the introduction and to you Caitlin. Thanks Abigail for having me here. Um, I'm Caitlin Whale. I currently act as the chair of the Next Generation Development Board at Client Earth, which I will share more about during the the course of this podcast. And in my day job, I am a climate tech venture investor, currently splitting my time between being an entrepreneur in residence in a London-based carbon removal fund and setting up my own vehicle to support sub-Saharan African climate ventures. Really looking forward to this episode. Thank you for having us.
0: Amazing, amazing. Thank you so much. And um, to Clement, um, you have quite an impressive background in the law, and I'm just curious to know why the law.
3: So I think that um, I've always wanted to to read law. Um, my my grand uncle had a way of influencing us, who was a who was a great jurist. Um, he, he rose to the Supreme Court of Ghana. So we've all been looking up to him. So growing up, um, I've wanted to, to do law. Um, I, I didn't set out to do natural resources law or environmental law. Actually, that was an accident. So I I, I come back from, from graduate school and the law firm I was working with had um, had a tax to work on Ghana's forestry laws and draft some laws for the ministry. And, no, no, no one was interested in forestry because it was not, it's not, it's not a very interesting area. We're looking for transactions and commercial law and um, stuff like that. So, my my senior in chambers just threw the brief to me, and the rest is history. Mm-hmm. So I I met forestry by accident, and I must say that if I see that accident coming again, I will throw myself into it because it's been a very exciting moment um, for for the past um, 14 years, um, trying to work with law, particularly as it relates to natural resources, looking at it from a social legal perspective, um, not looking at it as strictly legal and quoting legal provisions, but seeing how we can use law to influence change in how um, our resources are managed for the benefit of, of, of the larger societies, so that's that's why um, I fell into this area of law.
0: Yeah, I would say that's a very beautiful accident because you know we all need someone protecting the environment, and it's amazing to have people with a law background, you know, bringing their voice and their expertise to the fight. Uh, and to you, Dennis, would you say the same? For you, do you have inspiration from maybe? your parents, your grandparents, or was it different for you?
2: Well, just like Clement, it was never my intention to um, specialize in natural resources and environmental law. Uh, My first um, desire to read law was when I was in college, and Mm -hmm. I was involved in human rights work um, through Amnesty International Student Group on the University of Ghana. Mm -hmm. So I decided to do law to empower myself to improve um, how I can effect change in my environment. So when in law school, I decided to take um, an internship at Clements Law Firm, and I realized actually that law can be used for different things beyond what we know law is used for. And um, like I indicated, the firm had a practice that focused on natural resources and environmental law. And what struck me was, even though it was, it looked like it was boring work, and people didn't really were interested in that area of law, it was very very important for national development, in the sense in the sense that it's it was there to support development and planning. And as lawyers who were consulting on natural resources and environmental law, we were mm-hmm. actually helping policymakers to anticipate the challenges that could come and we were helping them design law. And for me, it felt like it was an avenue to provide more impact than mainstream law. So increasingly, I acquired the taste and I had more passion in that area. And now I, I, I... I That's all I do. I even don't like doing courts or transactions. I'm more interested in building civil society capacity and helping policymakers to do good law for national development.
0: Amazing, and I think that's a very important component where you're actually building capacity of communities and you can see the impact firsthand because of the trajectory that you help the civil societies to move in terms of advocating for change in the environment and climate space. Caitlin, you have a background in mining, and I am curious to know how you, you know, found yourself in the legal domain working on the next-gen strategy for client app.
1: Mm, thanks. So I actually, so my original background as is, is as a civil engineer, and mm-hmm. my first career was in the mining sector. And now it's almost come full circle because as a carbon removal venture investor, there's so many innovations that are coming out of the mining sector. And if we are to hit the net zero goals by 2050, the amount of minerals that we're going to need to mine is only going to continue increasing. So I'm really interested at the intersection of um, innovations and their force for good for helping the climate transition. And how I've got involved with Client Earth is less on the legal side and more on the advocacy side. So I'm part of a, a next generation development board we are 10 individuals from diverse backgrounds bringing our perspective and my perspective comes from investing in the innovations that are largely in the engineering arena that are trying to to move some of these these ambitions forward and the legal system is much more on a macro level how you can push you know huge corporates and governments to to act within the bounds of what's help, healthy from a climate perspective and mm-hmm. then the other side of the spectrum, working with the innovations that are then trying to move forward and act within that.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, of course, Clement, you've already spoken briefly about um, what you do with Taylor Crab. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. But wow. uh, Crab, okay, Taylor Crab uh do you mind sharing more about uh you know what that experience has been like and whether there are any other cases specific to you know forestry management for example the ativa forest that you know we, we would like to know what that experience has been like for you
3: so um what we have done um, with law over the over the years is to try to to dis, to demystify it and also use that as a tool for communities and civil society actors to sharpen their advocacy and their campaigns mm-hmm. so we've we've organized training programs where we help civil society organizations to understand the legal framework the underlying laws that regulates forest management natural resources in general
1: mm-hmm. and the
3: avenues for enforcement of these rights so over the years we have created a cadre of very active community and civil society actors who understand the basis of law, even though they have not been to law school, but they have managed to use this knowledge in law to influence their campaigns and now asked for law reform. And they've made policy proposals, they've um, contributed to drafts to change the, the legal framework for the management of natural resources. I mean, one law comes to mind vividly, which is the regulation on legality licensing, the law in country that um, domesticates the voluntary partnership agreements between Ghana and the EU. Now, civil society was very active in making proposals to government on how to reform the law to ensure that when Ghana trades, they had the trade in legal timber. That's one. So this capacity of social society being built over the years has gotten to a point where they are asking, so after the reform, what next? So if the law is reformed and we are not seeing the implementation of the law, what do we do next? So that will bring forth issues of enforcement using the courts, using other um complaint mechanisms, avenues to try and seek enforcement of these laws. So the Etiwa Forest case is one example where you have active community members and civil society organizations understanding that there are different categories of forest and the law has created those categories and the law has indicated what can be done in which forest. So if there's a forest that is categorized as a protected area or a global significant biodiversity area, it means that certain activities like mining cannot be done in there. And they have this basic knowledge. Because they have this basic knowledge, if they see any attempts at trying to mine in this forest, then there is advocacy. So they they engage the governments, made proposals that this cannot be done, um government was like we are going to also do it, but we'll do it sustainably. Um, civil society said no, you will destroy the, the the ecosystem, you will destroy the environment there. So next they file a case in court and say, no, even though you're a government, you cannot undertake this um, mining of bauxite within this area in Etiwa. So what we what we do is to support them. There's a a lead advocate who is um, arguing the case in court. So we support with um, uh, case building support, helping them to put their briefs together to be able to meet the the barrister who is doing the, the litigation in court. So over the years, we've moved from a place where it's just building capacity to understand the law and use it in their campaigns to a point where now they are even asking for enforcement of the laws where now communities and civil society actors are knocking on the doors of the courts to have the courts to enforce the laws regulating um, how we manage our natural resources um, in Ghana. So that's that has been a very exciting curve where you are seeing civil society actors who ordinarily will not, will not engage with the law.
2: Mm-hmm. And
3: they see the law as, as a barrier um, even to, to some of their campaigns. And now they have bought into the usefulness of the law as a tool to help the end of their campaign, so it's been a very interesting, Kevin. And, and I can tell you that now, um, government officials, state actors are are very wary to to even mention the law because immediately you mention the law, these civil society actors will tell you, "Show us the law. Where where are you quoting that law from? Because we also know the law and we mm-hmm. have access to it because we have printed these laws for them in a compilation." And they carry it to all their meetings, they carry it to their negotiations with government. So it's a very exciting thing to see as Dennis in the real-time impact with, mm. with, with what we're doing with civil society.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I think that's really um inspiring. And because where I sit most of the time, um, you know, when we are doing our advocacy, our you know, activism, never have I been in a position where I have basic knowledge of the law. And I think that's a very important component that should actually be replicated even in other countries. Because I feel like um, most of the time we it stops at, you know, action, it stops at matches, because further than that, we are unable to take the conversation forward because we don't have the basic knowledge for you know, of law, and we don't know how to engage government, we don't know how to engage negotiators. And I think that's a piece that should really be, (laughs) we should bring you to Kenya and other African countries so that you can support other young people to, you know, join the movement and have that basic knowledge. And Denise, I know your work um, is maybe primarily, or at least you mostly focus on the capacity building for civil society organizations. I just wanted to find out what that experience has been like for you. And... What do you think can be done to expand your efforts so that more people or other young people, or even people in the civil society space can be on board?
2: Yeah. So um, just like um, Clement indicated, I mean, empowering these actors um, is a first step. And then the next step is for them to actually go into action and to get to see that they do the change they want to see. My experience um, with um, CSOs uh, capacity building has been and um, very fulfilling and it's very interesting whenever I have to engage these actors in conversations and they actually ask questions, my law professors <laughs> they didn't even ask in class because they actually now appreciate and they are even able to see different perspectives that I, can, I usually overlook as a consultant. Uh, on your second question on how we can expand this, um, you know, to go into action as a civil society actor, you first have to have in mind that often the position is not palatable to uh, state actors and um, government officials often you are trying to advocate for change generally the assist- establishment will not want so to move further i think there's a need to create network among um, civil society actors this would also uh, this will first help build some synergy you know when they are actually trying to push for the change and there's resistance When you have a lot of actors who have come together, we have communities where they're able to exchange ideas, it will give the synergy to push the change. Secondly, it's going to give the chance for them to collaborate, you know, when they communicate a lot, there's reduction in replication of efforts so that they build on each other's efforts so that the scarce resources they have, they are able to make the maximum use of it. And the third would be in terms of providing security, you know, when... They are pushing uh, positions where politicians are not really in favor of. You know, when there's this group of uh, persons behind you, you you are not afraid of your for your life. So there's more confidence to actually push for the change you want. And at uh, Taylor Crab working with client earth, we have a legal working group where mm-hmm. we, in a way, create a community where these actors are able to exchange ideas. Every time we finish our legal training. We have an opening floor section where every actor tell us what they are working on on the ground. The others also contribute and see whether they can contribute. And, you know, it's a, it's a medium to exchange ideas. We have a WhatsApp group. We have an email thread where whenever there's a need to mobilize for action, it's easy. It's It takes less effort. You know, you just put it on the WhatsApp group. There's a lot of contributions. And we can just release, uh, we can have an issue this morning by afternoon or evening. We have released a position paper. So I think in addition to the legal training and capacity building, uh, we also have to increase efforts at creating more networks and communities where these actors can exchange ideas and support each other.
0: Okay. Amazing. I thank you for those very insightful um, comments and you know steps that we can take to make sure that these efforts are actually amplified and I'll invite Caitlin now to speak on you know the next generation climate leaders project with which is exciting because uh, I, I understand the plan is to engage about 1 million young people especially from the global south Caitlin
1: thank you so as you've heard from Clement and Dennis the the power that the law can have in unifying Multiple voices and really taking making a force for for change and this is this is what Client Earth does and just to touch on the kind of four areas that they focus on and and some cases within them I'll I'll touch on that and then I'll talk about the next generation board so looking at fighting climate change there's a a landmark victory that Client Earth has won which is um, taking the UK government to court for their flawed net zero strategy. And more recently, they've launched a greenwashing case against the Dutch aviation giant KLM for greenwashing. So that's on fighting climate change, defending nature. We've already heard about the awesome work that Client Earth has partnered with Taylor Crab to defend um, the Atewa rainforests and empowering the communities around their legal rights within that. Um, and there's also more recently been a case that's been launched against Cargill for some of the work that they've been doing with their agri farming, um, it was particularly around soy meal, which is being fed to livestock and how that's causing deforestation of the Amazon rainforest um, delivering justice. So Client Earth has trained more than 1,500 judges, including in the Supreme Court in China um, on environmental litigation and also protecting our health. Things like um, the Clean Air Act in the UK, which is now spreading out across Europe, but also challenging kind of big food giants like Nestle France, Danone, McDonald's France, and other uh, food and retail giants on their use of plastic, on their use of plastics. Um, So as the next generation board, we are a group, as I mentioned, of diverse individuals, ranging from 21 years old to 31 years old from all parts of the world. world. And we are bringing together our networks and backgrounds and different ways of thinking to see how we can amplify the work that's already being done by client earth and get awareness within the younger generation. And we're defining that as kind of below 35 years old. And within this, we are aiming to get 1 million people signed up and please, anyone listening to this, sign up on the link that's in the show notes, because we want to get young people who really have a big voice, who can then be, if there's a case that's happening in court, and someone supports it, we can get them to sign a petition. Or we if someone knows of an event that's happening, they can mention some of this work that's happening. So it's really about amplifying and, and communicating what's already being done by these awesome lawyers. And... I'm based between Cape Town in South Africa, and Nairobi in Kenya, and um, we've got Ramatuli on the Next Generation board who's based in Gambia, and together we're thinking about how can we proactively try and get the global South and and Africa represented within this one million young people. And so it starts with with here and and speaking on events like this. So thank you for for giving us the platform, and, and thank you for all the awesome work that you're doing with the law.
0: well thank you so much of course i'll probably be among that one million people signing up for that (laughs) training to make sure that i also you know get the training that i need um um, now i don't know if you are all aware but there's this uh, summit coming up in september hosted by the african union and the government of kenya which is an an inaugural summit it should have happened back in i think 2020 or 2021 but uh, of course covid and then no country was had taken it up and so some of the conversations that i, I have seen uh, in as the thematic area is the issue of critical minerals and i know you're all working or somehow tied to to the mining space. And I'm just curious to know, because um, when they speak about critical minerals, it's from a place of the world is trying to get to net zero and conversations around just energy transition are still looking at Africa to be the ones providing these raw minerals. But of course, when we look back in history, there's always been, you know, unsustainability in, in the sense that communities are left in deplorable uh, situations after the mining has taken place or either they don't really benefit from, you know, uh, the discovery of uh, mineral in the community and then it's just exported and it's not used locally and their lives are not changing anyway. So, Caitlin, I'm curious to know what your feeling is uh, with regards to how this conversation is taking shape and, of course, the fact that we really need to transition to a greener pathway as a globe.
1: Yeah, I think so. As I kind of alluded to, the, there's such powerful voice that, that can be had, with, in particular with the younger generation, as they're aware of their rights. And what we're trying to do with having this access to the next-gen kind of information ties is to have people, I was at an event a few weeks ago where someone was in um, in South America and I was telling them about some of the work that Client Earth had done in Poland and stopping new coal mines going up and they were like, oh, do I have the rights to to speak up about this? And absolutely, yes, you do. And and then it's more just about creating that connection point about understanding what is within your rights. And I think... As I mentioned earlier in this podcast, if we're going to hit those net zero targets by 2050, where we need wind turbines, which require critical minerals, and we need electric charging batteries um, for cars and vehicles, then we're going to need something like three times more copper, 20 times more lithium, and 40 times more nickel than what we're able to get today. So we have to all come together and work together to work out how we do this in the best way for the planet, for the people, and actually giving everyone a voice and and a platform to to understand their rights within that. Mm -hmm.
0: I love that you mentioned for the planet, for the people, and the fact that we actually need to work together to make sure that happens. And of course, Clement, you have a background in law. I'm curious to know what your take is on that.
3: So I think that... um... the the discussion on how mining is done sustainably is is gaining a lot of currency. Mm -hmm. um, As as opposed to um, forest and deforestation, where it's received a lot of international um, involvement by way of trying to set up certification systems and all that, We we don't have that kind of traction when it comes to mining. So I think um, I think that we need to start putting the same effort because comparatively, mining is more destructive to the environment than even logging. Um, because when you remove, you can, you can, you can plant. But mining and how it is done, particularly if it is mining of gold or bauxite, you have to destroy the, the surface before you dig um the air um, for the resource. So I think that the discussion should be more on how can we do this sustainably for the benefits of the state, for the benefit of the people and the community, and for the survival of the planet. So I see the planet as the, the bigger picture, and then you have governments and states trying to raise revenue from these resources and communities, within this um, subset who are also to benefit or suffer the, the negative effect of these mining um, operations. So what we need to do is to start a discussion where the discussion offers actually options for government because it becomes a question of revenue. So you say that you need to do this in a sustainable manner and there are options of doing this that can bring you even more revenue Because from what Caitlin is saying, we are going to need more of these critical minerals as as time goes on. So Mm -hmm. the the, the race to be the country making most out of these resources is going to heighten. If we don't start having these broader Mm -hmm. discussions on how this is done sustainably, we're going to be faced with a very um, grim scenario. And I think that um, law reform Sustainable mining discussions should be at the forefront, um, like the way we have done it for other forest risk commodities like cocoa, soy, and all that. We should have the same kind of momentum for for these critical minerals. Yeah,
0: I completely agree with you. And uh, uh, Dennis, your work is mostly tied to community. And how wh- how 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 do you feel about this whole conversation?
2: Well, yes, I agree Um, Mm -hmm. uh, for the transition into um, a a green economy, we are going to really need these critical minerals. However, we also need to make sure that the transition is just like you have indicated. Um, We need to actually look at our frameworks, um, legal frameworks governing this natural resource. Again, um, I can speak for Ghana, where um, in our legal framework, um, the property or the title in natural in minerals is vested in the present in trust for all Ghanaians. So you find minerals, you find any increase mineral anywhere. It belongs to all Ghanaians, but it's been vested in the present. We need to have a look at where the governance is such that decision-making about whether this mining is happening or not, and um, the transparency information actually would look at the input of communities that live around these resources. Because when it comes to sharing the cost, they have more. They have to pay more of the cost than other Ghanaians. You see, when there's mining going in communities, access to their farms becomes in uh, might be inhibited. Access to portable drinking water becomes inhibited. So they actually take more of the cost than other um, citizens living elsewhere. So these communities that live with these resources actually are more key. Should be key stakeholders in decision making, governing these resources and. Information should just not be made available, but should also be made accessible, where they would actually be able to appreciate what's happening and make critical inputs. So, um, talking about um, exploring of critical minerals, I think, yes, we have to do that, but we have to be equitable in our exploration. We need to give more um, um, access and available information to communities that live with these resources so that um, we are able to protect their interests and their livelihoods. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. Making sure uh, the communities are key stakeholders in the decision making and in the implementation of everything else. And as we wrap up, uh, Dennis, is there a way we can, that the audience can get in touch with you uh, if in case they're interested to be part of the trainings, whether they're in Ghana or any other parts of Africa so that they can be involved and learn from the kind of work you're doing with civil society organizations and communities?
2: Well yes so you can reach us through our website um uh through um LinkedIn and our social media handles our website is www.tailorcraft .com mm-hmm. um i believe you share a link or you yes. share uh, our website <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> in your credit. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah. can reach us either through our website or through our LinkedIn um channel we'll be happy to collaborate and to um do more impactful work within mm-hmm. Ghana, within the sub region.
0: Yeah, thank you yeah. so much. And then to Clement, uh, what is your message to the audience that would like to be involved in the legal domain in tackling environmental challenges or climate change?
3: Yeah, so, I mean, COVID has taught us that um, we can do things in different countries using mediums like, like Zoom. So currently, Most of our legal working group meetings, it's it's a hybrid form. So I will encourage other Africans who are listening, who are within this area, um, they will want to join these meetings, just reach out to us so that it becomes um, an African thing. I mean, it's it's, it's better when we start meeting like Africans, discussing our issues and coming up with um, positions that, that that will better our countries instead of doing things individually. So, these hybrid meetings, we can make them available um, so that others can join as well. Yeah. I think that what we will do uh, in the future, the future looks very bright. And I think that um, activism on how to protect the environment will not stop. We are entering into a new phase. There are, there are new minerals, there are, there are new um, things we are talking about. There's carbon, all those things. So And the law is going to play a critical um, point. So all activists must try and broaden their knowledge, basic understanding of the legal frameworks that regulates their various campaigns. And I'm sure that to get that, we can save the planet.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. And to Caitlin, um, how can young people or, you know, uh, at least from our audience be involved in the next generation? Climate Leaders Project and is there any other way we can support you and the strategy to actually amplify the work that you're doing and to bring more people on board?
1: Thank you. Um, Clement I love how you speak about the future being bright because I really do believe that we all have a role to play in trying to paint that bright future and I think my call to action would be for everyone young or or old to, to sign up on the next generation link, which is in the call notes, which takes you on a journey to understand how you can take action within your rights and whether you're a, a lawyer and we've heard some of the awesome ways that the lawyers are actually mobilizing huge amounts of change towards fighting for our climate. But also whether you're an engineer or an artist or a doctor, there's so many ways that you can get involved. So join us, sign up and we'd we'd love to have you on board for the journey.
0: Thank you so much. Um, so this segment is just to invite you to speak about anything else you feel you might have left out and really need feel the need to speak about it. Anyone can jump in.
1: I'd just like to say thanks, Abigail. You've done really well in preparation for this and, and bringing us all in and really excited to hear the finished product. Thank you. Thank you so much. Anyone else? Um,
3: thank you. Thank you again, Abigail. Um, mm-hmm. this, is, this is a wonderful platform. I think that we can we can use this increasingly to, to amplify the work that we do individually because mm-hmm. now the, the power of, of social media to mobilize, to get people to align is unmeasurable so um using tools like podcasts to do to do some of these things um it's, it's, it's very interesting and we're happy to to always um chip in and help in any way um maybe seeing us in kenya very soon <laughs>
0: Really, that would be amazing
3: Thank you, thank you very much for the
0: opportunity. Yeah, thank you. And this is just the beginning, of course. Uh, And I I don't say thank you to Caitlin for putting us in touch because I feel like there's so much more. This is just, we've only done surface level and there's so much more that we can do together. So thank you for putting us in touch. Dennis?
2: Yes, I would also like to thank you again for giving us your platform. Um, My message to your audience would be that um, everybody has a role to play. Irrespective of um, how big or small your effort is, Um, the work required to be done to move the world to a sustainable future requires everyone. If you are not an advocate, you can actually be um, an action, uh, an implementer in any small way. Mm -hmm. Every so it counts. Yeah, thank you.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so, so much. This was lovely.